Much of the music this morning has life as a pilgrimage as its theme, and we'll start off with the St Michael singers and a hymn about the destination of life's pilgrims. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God.
Today, Melvin Bragg explores the subject of medieval pilgrimage. First, he talks to Mary Rubin, Professor of Medieval History at Queen Mary College London, about the origins of Christian pilgrimage. Then Melvin asks Catherine Rudy, Professor of Art History at St Andrews University, about the motivation to go on long pilgrimage journeys. Finally, Melvin questions Anthony Bale, Professor of Medieval Studies at Birkbeck College in London, about when the large numbers of pilgrims started. Hello. In medieval Europe, the idea and experience of Christian pilgrimage was so intense that it fired the imagination of the age. For those who could travel, there was a constellation of destinations, from Jerusalem, Rome and Santiago de Compostela to countless local shrines associated with miracles. And those who had to keep home could recreate journeys in their minds, pacing cloisters with guidebooks in hand, replicating the number of steps from the Holy Sepulchre to the Mount of Olives, as if they were really there. With me to discuss medieval Christian pilgrimage are Catherine Rudy, Professor of Art History at the University of St Andrews, Anthony Bale, Professor of Medieval Studies and Dean of the School of Arts at Birkbeck, University of London, and Mary Rubin, Professor of Medieval and Early Modern History at Queen Mary, University of London. Mary, Mary Rubin, pilgrimage is common to all major faiths, but where would you look for the origins of Christian pilgrimage? What's special about Christianity is that God took flesh. He became a human. He lived a life. He lived in a family. He met people. He ate with them. He stayed in places. He touched people. He left an enormous number of places and buildings associated with his life. Now, after his crucifixion, his resurrection, there were memories of him. All these places become extremely, extremely important to his followers. And also, whenever his disciples uh, went throughout the Mediterranean to found churches in various places, most famously when Peter went to Rome, so there begins to be a sort of Christian geography. But the thing is that until the early 4th century, this has to be rather underground. It's after, after Emperor Constantine in the early 4th century allowed Christianity to be celebrated in public, that we find his mother, according to legend, Helena, literally going to the Holy Land in order to mark out the places, the places associated with Christ's life, and to build appropriate churches there, Nazareth. Bethlehem, Jerusalem. So in a way, she contributed to this holy geography of places that ought to be visited in order to participate, to remember, to show reverence. How did the number of sites ripple out from the Holy Land, west to Rome and Spain? When did that ripple effect happen? Constantine's there, we're in the 4th century, mm -hmm. we read about a nun in Portugal uh, taking a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, but when did it really begin to gather strength and where? New places are added because martyrs are created. So throughout the Roman world, all around the Mediterranean. For example, by the 4th century, if you go to the city of Cologne, you will find that there were already three churches to martyrs. So martyrs, those who in the periods of persecution under Nero, under, under Diocletian, were persecuted and burnt, again, their followers took away just remnants from their bodies and buried them in cemeteries that became holy places to visit. But of course, once Christianity is allowed to flourish, churches are built there, 
hospices are built there. And so there's the infrastructure for a much more evolved cult, we might even call, of these martyrs. And one more thing that's really important here is that for all these bones or remnants to mean something, you really need narrative. You need stories that make sense of them and convey them to future generations. And already from the second century, we have the first account of a martyr's life. And we'll come back to that discussion after some music. If we think of life as a pilgrimage, uh, we encounter difficulties on the way. The Scottish festival singers have a song to encourage us. It's, Courage, brother, do not stumble, though the way be dark as night. Was initially motivating people to set out on these much longer journeys. Your journey to Jerusalem, if you came from from Britain or North Germany, whatever it was, uh, would, would have there and back would have taken you something up to a year. So, what was the power there? Why were you, why did Mary's explain where you went? And but was there another any other motivating force? Three of the four Gospels actually exhort the reader to take up your cross and follow me. And Christians took this to mean that they should go to Jerusalem and walk in Christ's footsteps. And 
Christians really wanted to develop an empathic relationship with Jesus, but they wanted the fully immersive experience that the pilgrimage afforded. For example, at the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there was a, a chapel that had a stone basin for holy water, and pilgrims would put their heads in this hole, and they would hear this great mournful rumbling. And they were told that this was the sound of the wretched souls in purgatory. It's just an example of the kind of sensory experience that they were seeking. And Mary was really, she was said to have been the first pilgrim because she retraced her son's footsteps along the road to Calvary each day until she herself was, was assumed into heaven. And of course, Christ himself walked to the River Jordan to be baptized. And every subsequent pilgrim wanted to do the same, to plunge into the water and to commune physically and emotionally. When did the structures around pilgrimage, the pilgrimages itself are not in the Bible, penitence isn't, the, the, isn't the, when did these start to encrust the, uh, the Christian message and become as important as the Christian message itself? In Jerusalem in particular, they were really encrusted by the Franciscans who laid out the infrastructure and ship captains based in Venice would take groups of pilgrims so that they could arrive in time to walk from Jaffa to, to Jerusalem and arrive there on uh, the Day of Resurrection, on Easter, and thereby turn the, the journey into a, a recreation of Christ's final walk to Calvary. And for other pilgrimages, I'm, I'm thinking about the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela, St. James, his body was discovered, as it were, by a, a shepherd in 813, and uh, immediately a, a, a church built on that site. And from that point, he began to draw pilgrims, including Godelskalk from Lapuy, who was one of the first uh, recorded pilgrims in 851, to cross the Pyrenees and to gather an entourage and to visit the site of uh, the body of St. James. I'll pause for more music, and here's Maddie Pryor and the Carnival Band with the Pilgrim song, Who Would True Valor See? Confound his strength, the more is no lion. Can 
and Carnival Band with a song written by John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress. Who would true valour see, let him come hither. Now, let's have some more about pilgrimages. Anthony Bell, I'd like to have some idea of numbers for the listeners now. When did the numbers become significant? When were the big groups of people beginning to move through Europe, beginning to move east? In Western Europe... We're talking about pilgrimage in a really major way from the 11th century um, as something which is encompassing very large numbers of people. And I think one of the um, big kind of watershed moments is the First Crusade in the last years of the 11th century. In the 1090s, the Crusaders think of themselves as pilgrims, pilgrims with weapons, and they are given a plenary indulgence by the Pope for going on crusade, so they get this remission of sins. And the um, crusaders in the Holy Land, they think of their activity as um, both um, devotional with a spatial, um, local um, basis. They want to retake the holy sites. They want to keep access to the holy sites for Christians. Um, At the same time, you see the uh, popularity of purgatory and this doctrine of the remission of sins um, becoming widespread in the 11th and 12th centuries. And that really fires the cult of the saints. Um, In the British Isles, I would say that perhaps um, we're we're thinking about the the 12th century too as the time when you get the building of these great Norman abbeys and pilgrimage shrines, places like Walsingham, Bury St Edmunds, Canterbury, Glastonbury, that become for the next three or four hundred years really important places for healing, for devotion to the particular saint, for giving a votive offering, which might be a candle or it might be a very large gift. Um, And that is something which spreads across all different parts of society. And then Kate has already mentioned the role of the Franciscans in the Holy Land. From the 1320s, 1330s, the Franciscans become the kind of sole representatives of Western Western Christendom in in the Holy Land. And they work, to some extent, in league with the Mamluk Sultanate, which at that point occupies the Holy Land. And they set up a kind of holy travel agency from Venice to the Holy Land, running guided tours. Is there a sense, Anthony, that the... Church seeing this happen, and the centralized church, which was powerful for well over well over a thousand fifteen hundred years in every aspect of life, saw this as part of its economic structure of enforcing its power through what it could afford to do, which became increasingly expanded. That's undoubtedly a very significant part of it. And it slightly depends on the individual shrine. In some cases, a shrine could be very local. It could have been a Christianized shrine like a holy well that had already been a site of pre-Christian devotion beforehand, and that then became sacralized and Christianized. Mm. And then, so a, a good example here is Walsingham in Norfolk, where there's some holy wells. These were probably thought of as healing for many years. And then in the um, mid um 12th century, an abbey is built there to house the Holy House, which was a little structure. A local noblewoman called Rochelle de Favèche had had a vision um, that she should build a replica of the house of the Virgin Mary and the infant Christ from Nazareth. She should build that in Norfolk. An abbey is built there. The abbey becomes stupendously wealthy, wealthy through pilgrimage. Similarly, Bury St Edmunds and Glastonbury 
It's the Morrison Office Choir and Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, Pilgrim Through This Barren Land. City Alight with the song Yet Not I. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy. My righteousness and freedom 
my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus.
song was entitled Yet Not I, a reminder that the pilgrim has the strength of Christ within. City of Light were the musicians there, but here's David to tell us what's next. Malcolm Geit has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's reading of Psalm 21. It's followed by Vodges 8, singing May It Be. A response to Psalm 21. Now may you find in Christ riches and rest. May you be blessed in him and he in you in heaven, where to grant you your request is always blessing, for your heart is true, true to yourself and true to Christ your King. Breathe through this coronation psalm and view the glory of his golden crown. Then sing the exaltation, goodness, life and power, the blessing and salvation Christ will bring. But first, he wears a darker crown. The hour is coming and has come. Our Lord comes down into the heart of all our hurts to wear with us the sharp corona spina, crown of thorns, and to descend with us to death before he shares with us the Golden Crown. Rogers 8 are an internationally celebrated singing group with only eight members. Many of their songs are available on YouTube. Often they produce their own versions of well-known tunes. Today we hear the song made famous by Enya in Lord of the Rings. May it be...
Malcolm Geit was followed by Voters 8 with May It Be. Larry and Judy Gentis live in Kurt Michael and belong to Pitlochry Baptist Church. Today, Judy imagines herself to be Rahab, the harlot who helped Israel to capture Jericho. Sometimes your life hangs by a thread, and I mean that quite literally. In my case, it was a scarlet thread, and it not only saved my life, but the life of every single member of my family. My name is Rahab, and I used to live in the city of Jericho. In fact, my house was built into the city wall, and from that vantage point, I could see for miles around the city. How did I make my living? Well, there are few options for a woman in Jericho, so I had to make use of my assets, if you know what I mean. If there had been another option, I would have taken it, but as I said earlier, sometimes your life hangs by a thread and survival trains you hard. Here is my story. We'd heard that there was a tribe who had escaped from Egypt in the most unbelievable way, and they were heading in our direction. It was said that their God was giving them this land, our land. We thought the Amorites would stop them, but they couldn't. Then they were on our doorstep and we were next. So the city was shut up tight and defences were strengthened. Our rulers believed that we had, we had a good chance of repelling the attack. We had stores saved up and our well was within the walls which were two metres thick and very high, so an invading army would have had a very hard time breaking in. But despite these formidable defences, I just knew that the Hebrews were going to succeed because their God was fighting for them. You see, I've never quite believed in the so-called gods worshipped by my people. They're childish and arrogant, ruling by fear and mindless submission, and I just could not believe that they were real. The God of the Hebrews, well, that was another story. He talked to them. He gave them laws and he protected them from danger. And when they asked for his help, he gave it. Just look at the Amorites. This was not like our gods. One day, two men from the Hebrews came secretly to spy out the land. And they showed up at my doorstep. I kind of expected them because of my job. And I knew the king would have heard about them, so I hid them in my loft in amidst the the stalks of flax. Sure enough, the soldiers came to search the house. So I told them that the spies had come and gone. I pointed out a direction and the soldiers rushed after them as though they were chasing a shadow. Meanwhile, I struck up a deal with them. That's the spies, that is saying, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan of Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, Our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above the earth. Now, therefore, please swear to me by this Lord of yours, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth 
and spare my father and my mother and with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Before I let them down by a rope from the city wall, they gave me their promise that they would spare anyone who was in my house at the time of the conquest, with only three simple instructions, that they had to remain within my house, I was to hang the scarlet thread out of the window that I had let them in by, and that I would tell nobody about their plans. I agreed, and then we waited. It was not long before the Hebrew army arrived and surrounded Jericho. Everyone got ready for the attack, but it didn't come. Much to our surprise, instead they marched around the walls once every day for six days. Their priests blew trumpets, but the army itself was absolutely silent, deadly silent. Then on the seventh day, they did the same thing, only this time, They circled the city seven times and then suddenly they gave a mighty shout and it was accompanied by the trumpets. After the silence, it was a shattering sound, literally, quite literally. We all heard it and felt the rumbling noises from the wall and they all came crashing down. My family was safely huddled in my house and my scarlet thread was hung from outside the window as agreed. They were true to their words, and after the battle was won, they brought me and my family safely out of the house. I joined one of the Hebrew tribes called Judah and married a man called Salmon. At last, I could change my job. As we speak, I've got our first son on my knees, and I've named him Boaz, which means swift, because sometimes you've got to make decisions very fast. Your life can sometimes literally hang by a thread, just like my scarlet one. This comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verses 22 to 25. The song is, His Hand in Mine. Feel his hand in mine 
That's all I need to know, Elvis Presley there. We'll leave you with The Seekers and a gospel medley which starts with This Little Light of Mine. Shine my 